Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to the Wisden Cricket Weekly Podcast. This week we're doing something a bit different. To mark Black History Month in the UK, in conjunction with Chance to Shine, we're celebrating the contributions of some of English cricket's most loved black cricketers. Why are we doing it? Last week, Catherine Ross, the guest editor of Black History Month 2020, said about this year's celebration, In years gone by, October has been the only time of the year when the UK talks about the achievements of black people in Britain. Hopefully, the events of 2020 will be a catalyst for black history to be shared much more widely. In today's show, through a series of pre-recorded interviews, we chart the recent history of black cricketers in the English game, although this is by no means a comprehensive history. We'll be hearing from the likes of Alex Tudor, Devin Malcolm, Mikey Holding, Roland Butcher and Ebony Rainford-Brent about their careers, their experiences of racism in the game and questions around diversity in the here and now. To kick off the show, we pick things up in Barbados in the 1960s. Six of the seven black players to represent England in Test cricket in the 1980s were born in the Caribbean. Among them was Roland Butcher, the first black man to play cricket for England. Well, my move to England came about in 1967. My parents had been in England since the 50s. I was brought up by my grandmother and aunts. And really a house full of women. There were were no males in in the house. All the males had gone to England and Canada and everywhere else. So the only males in the household were kids who were younger than myself. Um, even my cousins, Monica that I mentioned, she was older than myself. And her sister, Yvonne, she was older than, than me as well. So I was brought up in a house of women. It came a point where my grandmother really thought that it was time that I had male influence in my life. And I know my father had been trying for years to get her to send us over to England, which she kept refusing. And, but eventually she gave in, and in 1967, I, was, I would have been 14 that year in October, was when I went to England. It was a real culture shock. You can imagine I came from 
the part of Barbados where it's very, very free, very open. There are no houses close together in St. Philip. You have plenty of space. I live on the coast right by the beach. Sunshine 365 days of the year. And suddenly I moved into a situation where it was completely different. It was cold, um, got dark very quickly. And more importantly, um, there was a new game being played. We're in Barbados, wherever you went, everyone was playing cricket. In England, everybody was playing football. So that really was a, a culture shock. Um, I must admit, at the beginning, I, I didn't really like it because, you know, it was very strange, very different. And it was pretty tough. Six years after breaking into the Middlesex side in 1974, Butcher won his first call-up for England in an ODI against Australia at Edgbaston. In his first knock in international cricket, Butcher claimed a world record, scoring the then-fastest half-century in ODI cricket against an Australia attack that included Messrs Lilly and Thompson. The first call-up for England, it, it was really strange, actually, because my first call-up was for the ODI team against Australia in 1980. I, that particular day, I remember I was at Lord's Middlesex for practicing. We completed our practice. I was just preparing to go home and I received a call from my wife. And she said, um, is it true that you've been selected for England? My answer was, not as far as I know. Nobody told me anything. I was at Lord's, nobody told me anything. So she said, basically, her boss said he heard something on the news. So I, I, I found that very strange. I, I really didn't take a lot of notice of it. I carried on doing what I had to do. Eventually went home. And about 6.30 that night, I received a call from my father. He said, is it true that you've been selected for England? And again, I said, not as far as I know. I had no idea. Nobody's told me anything. So it was not until after 9 o'clock that night when the BBC News came on that I actually saw it on the television. So it was confirmed then that I had been selected. So it, it, it was a strange way of actually finding out. I, I was never told um, formally at Lords that I had been selected. It was a, a strange feeling, but having got the opportunity to, to then play, uh, it really then was a fulfillment of my dreams as a youngster. I dreamed of playing test cricket. I dream, you know, I dreamed of playing international cricket. In those days, my dreams really would have been centered around the West Indies because that's where I was. I had no idea that I would journey over 4,000 miles to another country and then have the opportunity. But the significance of the breakthrough didn't come until much later because my, my sole focus really was on playing and doing well and succeeding at the, at the international level. Later on, obviously, when a person spoke to me and I had a time to reflect, and then really saw the other players breaking through, the likes of Will Slack and others breaking through. Um, then the significance of what really occurred that day came home to me. Remarkably, given his exploits on debut, Butcher played just five more times for England across all formats. Still though, Butcher enjoyed an immensely successful career away from the international game, playing a part in six county championship winning squads with Middlesex. Middlesex owed much of their success at the time to their group of black players, as well as Butcher, Norman Cowens, Wilf Slack, Neil Williams and West Indian Wayne Daniel were all key components of one of Middlesex's great sides. The story of Slack is a heartbreaking one. 
Less than three years after his test debut for England in 1986, Slack died suddenly at the age of 34. At the time of his death, he was the shortest-lived English test cricketer since World War II. Butcher, a close friend and long-time teammate of Slack, shed some light on both Slack the cricketer and Slack the man. Yeah, well, Slack was a great guy. I mean, he was my best friend. There's no question about that. Um, once he came to Middlesex, we formed a very strong um, friendship. You know, we were very, very close. So close that, you know, we lived a number of years together. We shared uh, um, flats in both in Finchley and in, in Hammersmith, along with me and Daniel. We were extremely close. Um, very, very good batsman, Bill Slack. Um, very untypical of a West Indian batsman because he was more of a, of a methodical, organised player. He wasn't flamboyant. Um, liked to occupy the crease. Very intelligent player. Um, and really formed a, a good opening partnership with Mike Greeley, which made us a very successful side because you always got a good start when those two were there. You know that Will Slack was not a player to give away um, his wicket. You know, you had to work very hard to get him out. So he, he really was a very good friend. And for me, when he passed away, it was a very sad time because he first developed a problem in Australia when he was playing for England on that tour for the first time he fainted and obviously had all the tests in Australia from the, the best and they could find absolutely nothing wrong with him. He came back to England, similarly tested in Harley Street everywhere, could not find a thing wrong with him, but it continued and, you know, it happened quite a number of times for just no reason. He would just you know, faint on the field. And he, all he would say to us is, you know, when, when it happens, just put him on the side and he will be fine. So that happened a number of times. And that went the winter of 1988, because I, I know it very well, because I think he, he, he died the day of my first benefit event in 1989, which was in January. He had gone on a tour to the Gambia um, he was batting, played a ball away. It was two runs, went for one, called for the second. Uh, when he got to the, when he went to turn at the other end, just really went down on one knee, um, fell over, and that was it. You know, he was gone. Now, later on, what they actually found out was that what caused his death was blocked artery. And really a blocked artery is something that can be treated quite easily. And the doctors said really that, but in England, when, he, when, he, when it was happening in England, what, what tended to happen was that by the time the medical people got from the pavilion to the middle of the field, he had recovered. Um, and that's happened all the time. So the, the doctors said really that if when it happened that we had felt for a pulse, we would have realized that there was no pulse. And then they would have known that it would have been a block artery, which could have been treated and he would have been fine. But none of us obviously fell for a pulse when it happened. And by the time the medical people got there, you know, he was back on his feet again, so he was fine. Um, that was a great shame, a great loss, because he was a good player and a very good friend. Over the 80s and 90s, black players represented England with an increasing regularity. Across the two decades, no one 
played more World Cup cricket for England than Phil de Freitas, who played a role in England reaching consecutive World Cup finals in 1987 and 1992. Devon Malcolm established himself as one of the most feared quick bowlers on the planet. To this day, Malcolm's 9 for 57 against South Africa at the Oval in 1994 are the best figures by an English quick since 1900. In his second test in 1990, Malcolm took five wickets against Viv Richards' West Indies at Sabina Park, Jamaica, the country of his birth to help England seal the famous victory. And But going to Jamaica, as you said, the land of my birth, first time back since I left as a youngster, and uh, to take on the West Indies, I must admit, also I must tell you this, I wasn't the best fielder in the world, you know, so I had to have very strong arm getting the ball in. So I normally feel in the outfield, fine leg, third man, all that business. And it wasn't nice at all because obviously the crowd was busy for us. They saw me as a kind of a traitor. You know, look, you were born in this country and you're coming back playing against us. But, you know, as I mentioned earlier on as well, as I told you how um, the rivalry between islands, how tough it was, say like, you know, Jamaica playing St. Vincent, playing St. Vincent or playing Barbados or, or it was fierce. Getting bowling, getting the riches out, LB in the first innings, you know. The crowd realized I could bowl pretty quickly. I got the riches out in the first innings. Fantastic. All of a sudden, who is this guy, you know, getting the master blaster out? But clean bowling, Jeff, I mean, clean bowling, uh, um, Viv Richards through the gate second innings was unbelievable because I mentioned to you how busy for us the crowd was, they were having a pop at me. And, you know, as I said, I could understand all the language, <laughs> you know, all the, the team that's trying to put me up on the boundary. But shortly after that, they realized, well, this guy get very Richard out once, but get him out twice. He can bowl quickly as well. And all of a sudden, quickly, the second innings, I was massively readapted by the crowd, you know. And that eats things on quite a bit, you know. I mean, I could hardly leave the field. Matter of fact, I've heard a few spectators and said, okay, right, no problem, Dave, you know. <laughs> you know, you were born here, let the Antiguan have it anyway, because when Jamaica played against, uh, um, when Jamaica played against Antigua, you know, we know what whole, whole top the rivalry is, and that kind of eases things down. Despite the increased presence of black cricketers in England lineups and how pivotal they were to the side's success, there were still those who questioned the commitment of England's back players. In 1995, Wisden Cricket Monthly editor David Frith apologised to Malcolm and DeFratis after the pair threatened legal action after an article written by Robert Henderson claimed that black players were less committed to the side's success. My loyalty was 100% totally behind England, as, it, as you could see in my performances. You know, first buying back to the Caribbean, I was the man who was taking the wickets, you know, getting quite a few wickets in the early days. So there wasn't any doubt at all where my passion lies and I give 100% for England. But later on, you know, that was questioned. You know, there was an article in the, in the Wizard magazine, I believe it was. Um, yeah, it was, it was not, I believe it was, um, a while back. And the article was um, probably submitted by somebody editor decided to put that in. Um, is it in the blood? Which were questioning, you know, um, as you mentioned a while ago as well, you mentioned that in the England side at the time, you had guys like Robin Smith and Alan Lamp, to name a few, whatever. But they were only questioning guys of West Indian background who were born in the Caribbean, namely myself, possibly the Freitas, Chris Lewis, um, Gladstone Small, he was in the team as well. They didn't call Bob Gladstone's name, whatever, but specifically at myself, Lewis and the Freitas, you know, is it in the blood? Can we perform? 
you know, hundred percent for England because of colonialism or because we're born in the Caribbean and all that business. And I thought that was totally wrong. We called around and, um, you know, I, at the time as well, you know, as I said, I was at Derbyshire and at the time I had, we had, um, uh, it's not like, no, where the cupboard is beer, you know, yeah. we had a Derby, um, a guy called Adrian Rollins, uh, Adrian Rollins, who was a black player, and Frankie Griffiths, and another guy, Alan Warner, Martin John Jackson, name a few. So there was quite a few black players around, although these guys wasn't in the England side, it was young players coming up, but, you know, I keep saying, look, these guys are black as well. So what you're saying to me now is this, not because we're here playing right now, you not only question said probably uh, how, how I saw it at the time, you, you know, you just questioning the whole black race, so to speak, because I said, look, at the time I didn't have kids or have children, whatever. And I keep saying, you know what, what am I going to tell my kids or my children later on, if I just walk away from this and not take this on to say, look, you know, not because you're black or because you haven't born in this country, you can't give this country a hundred percent. Yeah, understand. And I decided to uh, took the magazine on, and you know we did have an apology. We won the case, but it was very disturbing at the time, you know. And as I said, um, you know, for your loyalty to be questioned in that way, and it was evident. I walk on the field to play for for England. How much I put in, how much I love playing for England. Um, but I said the bigger picture was where we are now in a, in another way. Not only sports, I'll see. I saw it. I'll be further than that. You know, not only in sports, it could be any profession because you're black, you can't give 100%. No, that was totally wrong. So I had to try and put that, which we did put that right, took it to, took the Wisdom magazine to court and we, and uh, I won the case anyway. So, um, you know, glad uh, I stood up and um, had some good support from the PFA as well, the Professional uh, Football Association, because at that period of time, they were having a horrible problem I just, and I'm saying I'm not saying it's all gone now but they had a hell of a lot of problem with racism and all that within the football stand so I decided to you know to back me in the case to uh, to take that to take to take that article on to take the magazine on which you know became all triumphant in the end the 1990s saw 10 black men represent England in test cricket Mark Butcher became the first Englishman with Afro-Caribbean heritage to captain England in Test cricket at the end of the decade, leading England in the absence of regular skipper Nasser Hussain against New Zealand at Old Trafford. Among the new crop of black English cricketers was Alex Tudor, a rapid, young quick at Surrey who made his Test debut at the Wacker, age 21. In his third Test against New Zealand at Edgebaston, Tudor hit 99 not out as a night watchman. At 23, he took an Ashes Fifer against Steve Waugh's Australia. Tudor's family, like many that moved to the UK in the 60s and 70s, were empowered by the on-field success of the great West Indies side that dominated world cricket in the 70s and 80s. Especially during those times, it would have been difficult for them, you know, with the, as you say, with the racism and stuff. My dad never really talked to my brother and I about it. There were certain things he would tell us, but he sort of kept us away from that um, and just made us aware of stuff. But he didn't really tell us how hard it was for him and my mum when they came over. Um... But I think through sport, and I know that Michael Holden and that talk about it, so especially in the 70s, that the West Indian community here in England felt, you know, they all came together when that West Indian side came over, say, 76. And they did what they did with England and, and stuff like that. And they just felt they were proud and they felt we are being noticed. We are good at 
that stuff and they could go to work and pump their chest out. And so it was really important for, you know, that West Indian team in that time to do what they did. And, and thank God that they did because um, mm. it made a hell of a lot for my dad's generation that they were proud that, you know, they could see, you know, black people out there doing really well and not feeling like they're insuperior or anything like that, that they were out there dominating the world in, 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 a, in a sport that we love. I remember meeting, um, I was very young then, uh, brother slightly older, but meeting the great Joel Garner on the steps of the team bus. Uh, my dad knew him and he sort of introduced us to Joel Garner and this huge figure who basically just, he took up the whole space of the door. He shook my hand, he, his hand took up my whole arm. And my dad just said, you know, look out for my boys, they can play. Um, you know, and we were just like, oh, it's an honour to meet you guys and stuff. So that, that was great. Um, and yeah, it was just good times, really, you know. Uh, I did something quite, you know, um, obviously for Black History Month and people talking about your role models. I mean, in life, my dad's my role model. But if you talk about sport, that West Indian side of the late 70s, 80s, and I always talk about, you know, my favourite cricketer was Mal Malcolm Marshall, the late great. And I was lucky enough to, you know, meet, talk, cricket, bowling. Um, remember us doing that at Guildford on the balcony, Chris Lewis and myself sitting there just picking his brain and him just talking about bowling and, you know, different pitches, different batsmen, stuff like that. And I used to love all that because I just remember sitting downstairs and my dad and his mates would come round and they would tell you all their old cricket stories. Yeah. And um, I just always remember just listening and, and taking it all in. And that's what I did. And I could have listened to the great guy all day. As Tudor's career progressed, the number of black players in the game gradually decreased. Was Tudor conscious of being one of the few black men in English cricket? Um, only sort of when I got into the England setup, young England setup stuff. I was, you know, at London schools, there was myself and another kid called Freddie who was at Dulwich College and he played of my age group that were black. We had, you know, a couple of Asian lads that played and stuff, but there wasn't many. Um, but I was never conscious of it because my dad didn't really bring my brother and I up like that. And I didn't yeah. really see colour as an issue. I just thought, you know, because we were able and we were, we were decent that we played and stuff like that. But don't get me wrong, there were lads who, when I look back, were just as good, but just maybe didn't have the backing possibly maybe from the family or the authorities really to push them to keep going. So mm -hmm. I always say sometimes you need a little bit of luck um, and, and maybe these kids just didn't really, or I, I mean, I don't know. I mean, all what you hear and see now, you're thinking, I don't know, do they feel like, oh, we've got one or two and that's enough and, and we'll move on. But I look back and think, well, he was betting him and he was betting him. So why did they not get yeah. a go? You know, it's not even about like getting opportunities. It's like, just give them a go. Just like, just see how they get on. If they don't cut it, then fair enough. But give them the opportunity and the chance to have a go. Um, you know, then when you start getting into the dressing rooms, I mean, you, you mean you're talking about what, in the 80s, 90s, 90s, really. And they were harsh change rooms, right? So there was stuff that you would say that you could not do that now. Um, management. So not just the lads. I'm talking about management, coaches, stuff they would say. It was, it's either fists are flying or, you know, you, you go to the powers to be and hopefully that will get sorted out. But 
there was, you know, there's some stuff that said, and not just to me, to some of the Asian players that I played with at the time, disgusting. I think of it and I think it's absolutely disgusting, but sometimes I don't blame the individual. I blame either, that's how they were brought up. That's what they're around. That's all they knew. They weren't educated in that way and stuff. So it's just unfortunate, you know, and I, you know, I told a story about um, what happened to me once on a under-19 game and stuff. And I was like, uh, uh, a car radio had got stolen and I got blamed for it when I walked in and changed them and all the lads were laughing and I had to pull them up. You know, I was, I think I was 17 at the time. Mm-hmm. And I had said to the coach at the time, not to mention no names, that had this been a different situation, I might have, uh, I might have gone for you. But I don't want to risk not representing England and my chance in cricket. So it's like, you let them know that what you said is not cool. But had you said that to me or been, I've been around some of my boys, you may be in some trouble. Um, but luckily, you know, that didn't happen and stuff. But you look back and I just think, yeah, you're just uneducated in that field. You really don't know what you're saying. But if that's what they knew and then when they played, that's all they were hearing. So they think it's cool to say it. I, I take pride or not take pride. I, I, so I've, I have an older brother who's five years older than me. And I used to go around with his mates and stuff like that. So, you know, you think you mature quite quickly. But I, you know, sort of being a big guy, I always felt like, you know, if I need to say something, I would say something. And I would always tell the powers to be, that's not cool what you just said. And then they'd be, oh, no, 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 but it's, I'm cool with YouTubes, but yeah, that person I have a problem with. And I'm just like, that's not cool, man. Yeah. And this is coming from high up people that are in charge of stuff. And you're thinking, man, that's not cool. And I would always say that. I wouldn't stay silent. I'd always say, that's not right. That's not cool. Um, I suppose, you know, I should have gone higher, as in to say what was said. But I didn't. I just let that individual or individuals know that that's not right, what you just said. And that's not cool. Um, Because I never used to stand for any of that, you know, the, the, the racist stuff. And I'd always, even if the lads had got a bit carried away in the change room and that, I'd be like, you know, they might use the N-word a few times. Not as in, you know, but like they might be singing a song and stuff and, you know, with all the rap and that's about. And I'll be like, is it okay if you don't do that in my presence? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I don't like that word. And they would be respectful and they'd be like, all right, choose. But he's singing it, he's saying it. I said, look, I understand that, but I just don't like the word. And you're, you're saying it with like some extra... Venom in it and stuff. So, you know what I mean? And I, I, remember, I remember doing that to a couple of lads and they were like, okay, cool tunes, fine. Mm-hmm. And that's it, really. Tudor's experiences aren't isolated. They're experiences that will sound familiar to other black cricketers at the time, including Malcolm. You know, a lot of things happening and people, you know, <laughs> obviously what you used to call it in those days, banter. So you, you normally have a kind of a thick skin, so to speak. You know, people, you know, I'm saying certain things, but you know, as later on as you go on, you realize, okay, right, these banters probably going a little bit too far. And look, guys, need a bit of respect. But at times, banter could go over the line quite a bit. You understand? And that kind of, you know, picking at things and it kind of wear people and it will wear people down at times. But because of a big, strong guy, you know, I could either laugh at it off or just stand up for myself and say, look, 
right, you know, that's a bit too far. I don't like that. And Guy will probably take that on board. But, you know, and as I said, again, um, I must admit as well, because you loved the game so much in those early days and you wanted to play, you know, you know what, again, situation were like. So, again, you wanted to play cricket, so you must really don't step out of line. <laughs> you understand? So, again, you could be a lot more vocal and take something on for a little bit, a little bit um, uh, more vociferously in a way, but, you know, you know, I want to play cricket. If I stand up too hard here, I'll probably lose my opportunity <laughs> to play cricket. So those are the different things I personally found anyway, playing in the early 80s and 90s. Uh, uh, you see, you know, because you wanted to play cricket so much and you didn't have the sport, uh, um, so to speak. So at times you tolerate a lot of things where nowadays, you know, you just could not um, tolerate that. Since Tudor last played for England 18 years ago, Chris Jordan, Michael Carberry and Joffre Archer are the only black men to represent England in Test cricket. Of the three, only Carberry developed through the English system. What's that down to? Tudor attributes part of the decline in participation among the Afro-Caribbean communities down to cricket's absence on terrestrial TV. As for young black players, I mean, obviously we, we know about Ebony's ace programme now, but it's like, did it really need for her to take something like this on her own and say, right, I, it, something needs to be done. Really great that she is. And there's, you know, kids out there that feel that they're important and they're going to get noticed. They might get the opportunity that they haven't had before. But then that's, a, for me, an indictment of other organisations that have saying they're doing stuff. But really, are they? Because I'm like, how can you be in and around London with all that talent? And you're telling me there's no black kids that given the opportunity that want to play cricket. Mm-hmm. It might be... Parents can't get them there. The money aspect of it. Um, just that they don't really see or familiarise themselves with anyone that they see on the TV or anything. My massive thing, Phil, is always, right, don't care what it is, is that if you want to infuse the next generation and the young people, they've got to be able to see it. I know Sky are fantastic and they front up a lot of money and everything like that. It's fantastic. But the people you're trying to interest are not going to see it. Because even on their best days, they don't get over a million followers, viewers. So there's a load of people not seeing critics. If you went up to local schools in London, you said to them, name the top 11 England test team. They weren't able to do it. Back in the day, when it was on BBC, we could tell you who was playing the county cricket, the team, everything. Because you can see it. You can turn it on on terrestrial TV and see it. I know there's an issue because of money and Sky have been fantastic, so I would never say anything against it. It's not Sky's problem. They're a business. That's what they do. But if you want the next generation and the kids to see it, they've got to be able to see it. And that's why it's a, it's a bit of a shame, obviously, during these difficult times that the 100 weren't able to, had to be postponed and stuff like that because that was going to get a share on terrestrial TV so the kids can see it and and everything like that, and try and get that. And for me, that's what needs to happen, because black kids are like, right, we can see the football. We can see the demographic of that. Loads of black kids playing football. I said, I've never seen so many black kids playing rugby union. Look at all the young lads coming into rugby union now. Why is that? You know what I mean? So it's like, has to be seen. Has to be seen. Um, and obviously, you've got Joffre now, and you know Chris Jordan, when, obviously, when England played 2020s, but... 
Before that, Cobbs. Before that, me. Before that, Headley. Malcolm. Defreitas. Elaine. You know what I mean? You, you can go back and there, will be, there, will, there was a lot more. And then obviously as the time's gone. And I said it's more of a generational thing as well because my parents come over. They have offspring. Their kids, cricket. I, you know, and then you think of my generation now. So you talk about the 40-somethings. They have kids. Cricket's not really... It's football. It's all about the, it's all about the football. So it can be a generational thing. Um, unless your parents were passionate and loved it, then you would most probably go into that. But if they're not, so I don't know if it's sometimes, if it's the issue of why is there no black kids playing? It might be just, it's a generational thing. They haven't been brought up with cricket. And I, you know, and I say, you know, the West Indies team over the last 20 years has been rubbish. So, you know, the 80s and stuff, everyone, you know, apart from if you're an English fan, everyone's second favourite team were the West Indies because they came with flair, lads lashing it, bowling quick, fielding, you know what I mean? So everyone wanted to, in the school playground, bowl like Ambrose, Walsh, Holding, Joel Garner, Roberts, everything like that. You know, you can wheel off the names. Everyone wanted to be like Viv, Gordon Greenwich, Desmond Haynes, Hoops, Oh, you know, Richie Richardson with the sun hat. Everyone wanted to do that. Now, no. You know, I'm not going to blame the West Indies decline, but it's got to be a factor on why there's not so many. And there's got to be a factor, for me, is generational. Because um, the young kids now, you know, the kids so my age and younger, say the 30-somethings that are having kids, you know, they most probably brought up into football. They really most probably didn't do the cricket. Their parents might have done but then when it's come to them, it's like, nah, what am I watching them? West Indies are rubbish not watching them. Well, let me watch some football. Let me watch Arsenal. Let me see Wrighty. And then them man there scoring goals and, and stuff like that. And Thierry Henry and, and stuff. Les Ferdinand and stuff. So, that, you know, it can be a generational thing as well. For Butcher, the problem is boardroom representation. Get people from more diverse backgrounds into decision-making positions at all levels of the game. And we may eventually see an uptick in involvement from the Afro-Caribbean communities. I think cricket has started to put things in place, but there's a lot more that they need to do. It's okay saying there are not enough black or Asian or whatever players in the in the game. That is fine. That is one. That is only one part. But more importantly, where cricket has to change is on the committees, on the boardrooms. Now, if it continues like it is, then Everything that happens on the field will be very simple. Changes have to be made at boardroom level. The first class counties, their boards need to be more inclusive. Um, same thing with the, the county committees, need to be more in inclusive right across the country. Same thing in the minor counties. You know, those things have to change. When you really make changes there, then it will trickle down. So it, there's no point in just few teams doing something symbolic that lasts for a few weeks. Real changes must take place in the boardroom. I think also some of the things like what Emily Wainsford Brent is doing right now with the ACE program, I think those type of programs will bring awareness and results and show that 
yes, out there there are talented youngsters if given the opportunity, if given the the coaching. What her program has highlighted so far is that there there is still a hunger to play the game, even though the kids are not coached or they have the facilities. The group of players that she was able to assemble that came for the trials, actually, over 100 of them, uh, the standard was so high that they had to increase the number of scholarships that they were given They were given because the standard was high. And some of those players were at a better level than what they got at the academy. Uh, I think once they dug a little bit deeper, they, they realized that these kids were not from any organized club. They didn't have any coaching. The facilities where they practice was poor, but yet they were able to attain a certain level of skill. Now, if you were able to now put into those areas some better facilities, some coaching, some opportunities, you know, English cricket can only benefit from that by the diversity of players that would come through. So I think all wrong has to do a lot of work. The boards administratively the teams, you know, it, 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 cricket has to wake up and, and really do its bit. I think football for a number of years, as you know, you know, back in the 80s, you know, football really had a serious problem. But all credit to them, you know, they have been fighting over the years, you know, to kick racism out of, out of football. Um, you've only got to look around the leagues, the Premier Leagues and others, to see the number of black players from all parts of the world playing their trade in those football leagues. Cricket really needs to get its act together. Um, it's still very much an all-boys club cricket. And in recent time, most of the players are coming through the public schools. No difficulty with players coming through the public schools. Obviously, the public schools have wonderful facilities. They have full-time coaches, um, you know, good coaching, etc. So they will, they will come through. But... The public school system is only a very small part of the UK. There's a much larger unit outside of the public school system where if England tap into, really, in, in the future, England could be such a powerful um, team going forward. You know, if you've, if you've got black persons um, on those committees, I mean, what they will do is be able to certainly have discussion with their other committee members and raise awareness to certain things. I think sometimes, um, you know, you can become very apathetic about things and, and really don't see the bigger picture. I think if you've got people in those positions, it's a constant reminder that, you know, that you need to be looking not just inwardly, you need to be looking outside as well. And I think it keeps people's, keep people honest. It keeps you honest. And obviously, I want the people to be in those positions on merit. I don't want you to just put a black face on a committee because he is black, because then he really has, um, he has no impact. He's just purely a number, and, he, and he's outnumbered. I want people put in those positions who really can make a difference. Um, so there are those people out there. Nobody's going to tell me that you do not have enough black and nation capable people in the UK to sit on these boards and make a meaningful contribution. They are out there. You just need to really give them the opportunity. What is missing right now is the opportunity. So 
once we are able to do that, I think cricket will find itself in, in a very good space. And the beneficiaries of that really will be the England team and the country. There are efforts being made to address that fall in participation. Earlier in 2020, England World Cup winner Ebony Rainford-Brent set up the African-Caribbean Engagement Programme at Surrey that aims to give opportunities and provide a pathway to young black cricketers in South London. Last month, Rainford-Brent explained the thinking behind the programme on Wisden's Cricket Force podcast in association with NatWest. Yeah, I have to think we have to be honest as well that the, the initial lens is talent, you know, just 100% so we don't miss a generation. Can we find the best talent? And develop them. So that's our first aim, and that's what we did with the academy. But we do have a longer-term plan, which I still see as a talent lens, because I think we need to make sure that our club game, all the way up to our professional game, has a talent pathway. You know, they're established at the moment that you know kids who go to Whitgift School know that they can have an into the Surrey Performance Program, or you know, if you're at Spencer Cricket Club, which is a very big club, there's a clear pathway. What we're aware of is there aren't clearly established pathways that go into communities partly to do with facilities um, partly to do with investment partly to do with I think our game's been a bit lazy on this issue um, to reach out so I say the whole thing is from a talent perspective where if you have the ability you need to be in the best academy but equally we need to be building talent pathways that go from the real grassroots of the game all the way up so talent can come through. The death of George Floyd in May this year led to worldwide protests and catapulted the Black Lives Matter movement into the international spotlight. In June, former England opener Michael Carberry, speaking on the Cricket Badger podcast, claimed that cricket was rife with racism and that the people running the game don't care about black people. When England's test summer got underway in July, Sky Sports chose to use its access to a global audience during a rain-affected first day to keep the movement at the forefront of people's minds. Rainford Brent and Mikey Holding both delivered powerful testimonies of their experiences of racism to camera, with a further clip of Holding expanding on his pre-recorded segment going viral. England and West Indies both chose to take a knee ahead of the three tests they played this summer, a gesture used by the NFL player Colin Kaepernick to protest against police brutality and racism in 2016. England decided to no longer take a knee for their subsequent series against Pakistan, becoming the first professional sports side in the UK to stop taking a knee after originally doing so. Michael Holding, speaking to John Stern for an upcoming feature in Wisden Cricket Monthly, reiterated his frustration at the decision made by England. Definitely, I don't agree one iota. You should always send the signal. That, has, that is an accepted gesture. Taking a knee. I saw a woman's football team in Sweden take a knee. It is accepted throughout the world that that is what we would do to send a signal that you are unhappy with the state of play in the world and you want it to change. That does not substitute anything else happening in the background or in any, any organization. It is not a substitute. It is something that sends a signal. And I think a lot of people all over the world totally disagree with it. Yeah. Because the footballers in America are doing it. The latest women's team in Sweden doing it. I saw an under-16 cricket team in Scotland do it. You don't stop taking a knee until you can see change and positive change. Yeah. So it is not difficult. And what you are doing is making everyone aware of what is taking place. Someone who is unaware of anything at all turns up at the game. They say them, some the people take a knee, they say, what, what is that about? And they become aware. 
And again, I repeat, doing things behind the scene does not substitute taking a knee. And taking a knee does not substitute for doing things behind the scene. They're not exclusive. They're not inclusive, rather. They're totally exclusive. One is different to the other. England cricket's most famous moment came at Laws last summer as they won the Men's World Cup for the first time in the final to end all finals. The man tasked with bowling the all-crucial super over? 24-year-old Barbados-born diamond by the name of Joffre Archer in his first summer as an international cricketer. Malcolm, a man who knows a thing or two about how the public can respond if things don't go right, was literally on his knees praying for Archer at the start of the Super Over. Well, you know what? <laughs> when I saw that, I got on my knees and I started praying for Jafra because as a youngster who just been co-opted in the team, who hasn't played a hell of a lot, I said to myself, I wonder if Jafra realised what he's taking on here because obviously a lot of the other senior bowlers who've been in the side, well established before them, probably didn't put their hand up to do that. He's young, naive, don't realise. And I had to pray. I pray. I keep saying, you know what? Please, whatever you do, let us win. Let England win. Because that could be the end of Jafra. Because, you know, it could it could gone the other way. It could have gone the other way. And you know what? He could have had the blame. And 10, 15, 20, 30 years down the road, he's going to, you know, if England haven't gone and won, win the World Cup in many more times, he probably going to blame himself. Because it could have easily gone the other way. But I tell you what, you know, he's such a brave boy to do what it is, held his nerve and help England to pull through because I tell you what, it wasn't an easy job. It was not an easy job. He was thrown in the very, very deep end. But as I said, you know, he went and uh, he did well enough to uh, for us to win the game, to help to win the game. And it was fantastic because I absolutely, I was shaking for him, to be honest. I felt for him so much. Archer continued his sublime start to his international career in the home Ashes series that immediately followed the World Cup, taking two sixes in his first four tests and bowling one of the most memorable spells ever witnessed on these shores on debut at the home of cricket to the best test batsman on the planet, Steve Smith. But in the tests that followed, where Archer didn't quite reach the stratospheric heights of his 2019, those old questions of commitment and attitude came back. He has had a, a massive amount of negative criticism in a way. The criticism was very harsh indeed. You know, you watch him bowl in New Zealand. I watch him bowl in New Zealand. And I was looking back at my stats and I keep saying, Dev, I don't, I, all the time I've played, I've never bowled or I've never ever seen a fast ball about 40 odd overs, <laughs> you know, in, in, a, in, a, in one innings, a 30 odd innings. And he, he turned on some serious, a lot of overs. So no wonder you see the, the pace drop from where it is. He can't do it. He's human being. It's impossible for him to charge in. A lot of people said, okay, Dave, when he used to bowl, he used to charge in, give it 100% every time. Bowling, you know, from ball one to the last ball of the day, my build is totally different from Jafra. His action is fantastic. He bowled very quickly. He did extremely well in the Ashes series. You know, bowled from very quick ball, um, balls, condition right for him. But I tell you what, to go abroad or to do that every time, and you could tell. You, you, could, you could really see the workload and what test cricket takes. Test cricket is a very, very uh, um, tough and difficult and, uh, 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 um, task to do. So, to be honest, um, when Jaffro bowling in New Zealand um, last year, a couple of years ago, I actually called up management and said, look, could you pass me Jaffro's thing? Because he needed support. You know, I played cricket in New Zealand and I know what it's like there. And some of these comments that was going at and 
as you said, things put out on Twitter and various different things, you know, uh, um, what's been put in the press. Even sometimes playing with England, you see the pace drop and people say, you know, it's different when you're bowling when the weather is a bit colder than normal, when your muscles are warm up. And he's, uh, Joffrey is a rhythm bowler. And I didn't have to get the opportunity to really chat, to talk to him and said, look, don't worry, you know, this is what cricket test cricket is, don't let these negative uh, um, comments put you down because you're going to come through it and, and blah, blah. But as you, as you rightly said, a lot of these um, comments, you know, the man is not a machine. You can go in there and bowl at 90 miles an hour. It's impossible. You don't care who you are. You can't do it day in, day out. Jafra, as you can probably see in the, in the shorter form of the game, you know, uh, uh, um, he is a series of box office player and he does that for England when he gets things right. And I'm, I'm hoping, you know, a lot of youngsters will, you know, see Jaffa playing, want to play cricket. I hope he, he's going to um, inspire a lot of cricketers, um, you know, our youngsters to take this game up because it can be rewarding. And again, there's different forms. Test cricket, I love test cricket, you know, uh, that's my, my ultimate, the longer form of the game. But, you know, if we get youngsters, if they're like the shorter form of the game, fantastic. Because from that, quite a few will filter through to the longer form of the game. Yeah, but I mean, Jaffa is a, is a role model. If he, be, if he, if he um, get treated right, not <laughs> bowled into the ground, we'll have him around for a very long time. In Archer, England have the perfect poster boy to inspire a new generation of young cricketers from the UK's Afro-Caribbean communities. A genuine superstar who at 25 after his heroics last summer, is already assured of his status as an icon of the English game. Without black cricketers, English cricket would be a much duller place. The brilliance of the likes of Malcolm, De Freitas, The Butchers, Tudor and now Archer and Jordan are built into our history and our identity. If it's lost, our game will be all the weaker for it. Archer is a gift to the English game and one we should cherish and protect. He cannot be the last in a long and shimmering line of great cricketers who have touched and elevated the English game. If you're a teacher or know a teacher who might be after some tools to help celebrate black British cricketers this month, head to chanceshine.org forward slash BHM. A big thank you to all the contributors to the show, Michael Holding, Roland Butcher, Devon Malcolm, Alex Tudor, Ebony Rayford Brent, John Stern and Phil Walker, who also helped craft the script. If you've enjoyed the show, do share it with your friends and teammates. And if you're feeling especially nice, why not leave us a five-star review in the podcast app. Cheers. Podcast Network.